Section 14 of Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nemo. Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal by Edmondo de Amicis. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. March. The Quarrel, Monday, 26th. It was not out of envy, because he got the prize and I did not, that I quarreled with Coretti this morning. No, it was not out of envy. Still, I was in the wrong. The teacher had placed him beside me, and I was writing in my copy-book when he jogged my elbow and made me blot and soil the monthly story, Blood of Romana, which I was to copy for the little mason, who is ill. I got angry and said a rude word to him. He replied with a smile, I did not do it on purpose. I should have believed him because I know him, but it displeased me that he should smile, and I thought, oh, now that he has had a prize, he has grown saucy. And a little while afterwards, to revenge myself, I gave him a jog which made him spoil his page. Then, all crimson with wrath, you did that on purpose, he said to me, and raised his hand. The teacher saw it. He drew it back. But he added, I shall wait for you outside. I felt ill at ease. My wrath had simmered away. I repented. No, Coretti could not have done it intentionally. He is good, I thought. I recalled how I had seen him in his own home how he had worked and helped his sick mother, and then how heartily he had been welcomed in my house, and how he had pleased my father. What would I not have given not to have said that word to him, not to have insulted him? And I thought of the advice that my father had given to me. Have you done wrong? Yes. Then beg his pardon. But this I did not dare to do. I was ashamed to humiliate myself. I looked at him out of the corner of my eye, and I saw his coat ripped on the shoulder, perhaps because he had carried too much wood, and I felt that I loved him. I said to myself, Courage! But the words, Pardon me, stuck in my throat. He looked at me askance from time to time, but seemed more grieved than angry. And I looked crossly at him to show him that I was not afraid. He repeated, We shall meet outside. And I said, We shall meet outside. But I was thinking of what my father had once said to me. If you are in the wrong, defend yourself but do not fight. And I said to myself, I will defend myself, but I will not fight. 
but I was discontented, and I no longer listened to the master. At last, the moment of dismissal arrived. When I was alone in the street, I perceived that he was following me. I stopped and waited for him, ruler in hand. He came up, and I raised my ruler. No, Enrico, he said, with his kindly smile, waving the ruler aside with his hand. Let us be friends again, as before. I stood still, in amazement, and then I felt what seemed to be a push on my shoulders, and I found myself in his arms. He kissed me and said, We'll have no more quarrels, will we? Never again, never again, I replied, and we parted content. But when I went home and told my father all about it, thinking to give him pleasure, his face clouded over, and he said, You should have been the first to offer your hand, since you were in the wrong. Then he added, You should not raise your ruler at a comrade who is better than you are at the son of a soldier. And snatching the ruler from my hand, he broke it in two and hurled it against the wall. My Sister, Friday, 24th Why, Enrico, after father had already reproved you for behaving badly to Coretti, were you so unkind to me? You cannot imagine the pain that you caused me. Do you not know that when you were a baby, I stood for hours and hours beside your cradle, instead of playing with my companions? And then when you were ill, I got out of bed every night to feel whether your forehead was burning. Do you not know, you who grieve your sister, that if a dreadful misfortune should overtake us, I should be a mother to you and love you like my son? Do you not know that when our father and mother are no longer here, I shall be your best friend, the only person with whom you can talk about our dead and your childhood, and that, should it be necessary, I shall work for you, Enrico, to earn your bread and to pay for your studies, and that I shall always love you when you are grown up, that I shall follow you in thought when you go far away, always because we grew up together and have the same blood. Enrico, be sure of this when you are a man, that if misfortune happens to you, if you are alone, be very sure that you will seek me, that you will come to me and say, Sylvia, sister, let me stay with you. Let us talk of the days when we were happy. Do you remember? Let us talk of our mother, of our home, of those beautiful days that are so far away. Oh, Enrico, you will always find your sister with her arms wide open. Yes, dear Enrico, you must forgive me for the reproof that I am giving now. I shall never recall any wrong of yours, and if you should give me other sorrows, what matters it? You will always be my brother, the same brother. I shall never recall you otherwise than as having held you in my arms when a baby, of having loved our father 
and mother with you, of having watched you grow up, of having been for years your most faithful companion. But do you write me a kind word in this same copybook, and I will come for it and read it before the evening. In the meanwhile, to show you that I am not angry with you, and nothing that you are weary, I have copied for you the monthly story, Blood of Romana, which you were to have copied for the little sick mason. Look in the left drawer of your table. I have been writing all night while you were asleep. Write me a kind word, Enrico, I beg of you. Your sister, Sylvia. I am not worthy to kiss your hands, Enrico. Blood of Romana Monthly Story That evening, the house of Ferruccio was more silent than it was wont. The father, who kept a little dry-goods shop, had gone to Forli to make some purchases, and his wife had accompanied him with Luigina, a baby, whom she was taking to a doctor, that he might operate on a diseased eye. They were not to return until the following morning. It was almost midnight. The woman who came to do the work by day had gone away at nightfall. In the house, there was only the grandmother with the paralyzed legs and Ferruccio, a lad of thirteen. It was a small house of but one story, situated on the highway at a gunshot's distance from a village not far from Forli, a town of Romana. And there was near it an uninhabited house, ruined two months previously by fire, and on which the sign of an inn was still to be seen. Behind the tiny house was a small garden, surrounded by a hedge, upon which a rustic gate opened. The door of the shop, which also served as the house door, opened on the highway. All around spread the solitary country, wide, cultivated fields planted with mulberry trees. It was nearly midnight. It was raining and blowing. Ferruccio and his grandmother were still up, sitting in the dining room, between which and the garden was a small, closet-like room with old furniture. Ferruccio had returned home only at eleven o'clock, after an absence of many hours, and his grandmother had watched for him with eyes wide open, filled with anxiety. She sat in the large armchair, upon which she was accustomed to pass the entire day and often the whole night as well, since the difficulty of breathing did not allow her to lie down in bed. The wind and rain beat against the window panes. The night was very dark. Ferruccio had returned weary, muddy, with his jacket torn, and the livid mark of a stone on his forehead. He had engaged in a stone fight with his comrades. They had come to blows, as usual, and, in addition, he had gambled and lost all of his soldi, and left his cap in a ditch. Although the kitchen was lighted only by a small oil lamp placed on the corner of the table near the armchair, his poor grandmother had instantly seen the wretched condition of her grandson, 
and had partly divined, partly brought him to confess his misdeeds. She loved this boy with all her soul. When she had learned all, she began to cry. Ah, no, she said after a long silence. You have no heart for your poor grandmother. You have no feeling to take advantage in this manner of the absence of your father and mother to cause me sorrow. You have left me alone the whole day long. You had not the slightest compassion. Take care, Ferruccio. You are entering on an evil path which leads you to a sad end. I have seen others begin like you and come to a bad end. If you begin by running away from home, by getting into brawls with other boys, by losing soldi, then gradually from stone fights you will come to knives, from gambling to other vices, and from other vices to theft. Ferruccio stood listening three paces away, leaning against a cupboard, with his chin on his breast and his brows knit, being still hot with wrath from the brawl. A lock of fine chestnut hair fell across his forehead, and his blue eyes were motionless. From gambling to theft, repeated his grandmother, continuing to weep. Think of it, Ferruccio. Think of that scourge of the country about here, of that Vito Mazzoni, who is now playing the vagabond in the town, who at the age of twenty-four has been twice in prison, and has made that poor woman his mother die of a broken heart. I knew her, and his father has fled to Switzerland in despair. Think of that bad fellow, whose salute your father is ashamed to return. He is always roaming with miscreants worse than him, and some day he will go to the galleys. Well, I knew him as a boy, and he began as you are doing. Reflect that you will reduce your father and mother to the same end as his. Ferruccio held his peace. He was not bad at heart, quite the reverse. His pranks arose rather from an overflow of life and boldness than from an evil mind. And his father had managed him badly just here, for he gave him great liberty, because he knew him to be good-hearted and capable, at bottom of the finest sentiments. So he left the bridle loose upon the boy's neck, and waited for him to acquire judgment for himself. The lad was good rather than perverse, but stubborn, and it was hard for him, even when his heart was repentant, to allow those good words which win pardon to escape his lips. If I have done wrong, I will do so no more. I promise it. Forgive me. His soul was full of tenderness at times, but pride would not permit it to show itself. Ah, Ferruccio, continued his grandmother, seeing that he was silent, not a word of penitence to me? You see to what a condition I am reduced, so that I am as good as actually buried. You ought not to have the heart to make me suffer so, to make the mother of your mother, 
who was so old and so near her last day weep. The poor grandmother, who has always loved you so, who rocked you all night long, night after night when you were a baby, a few months old, and who did not eat in order to play with you. You do not know that I always said, this boy will be my consolation, and now you are killing me. I would willingly give the little life that remains to me if I could see you become a good boy and an obedient boy, as you were in those days when I used to lead you to the sanctuary. Do you remember, Ferruccio? You used to fill my pockets with pebbles and weeds, and I carried you home in my arms fast asleep. You used to love your poor grandma then, and now I am a paralytic and in need of your affection as of the air to breathe, since I have no one else in the world, poor, half-dead woman that I am. Ferruccio was on the point of running to his grandmother, overcome with sorrow, when he fancied that he heard a slight noise, a creaking in the small adjoining room, the one which opened on the garden. But he could not make out whether it was the window shutters rattling in the wind or something else. He bent his head and listened. The rain beat down noisily. The sound was repeated. His grandmother heard it also. What is it? she asked anxiously. After a pause, the rain, murmured the boy. Then, Ferruccio, said the old woman, drying her eyes, you promise me that you will be good, that you will not make your poor grandmother weep again? Another faint sound interrupted her. But it seems to me that it is not the rain, she exclaimed, turning pale. Go and see. But she instantly added, No, stay here, and seized Ferruccio by the hand. Both remained as they were and held their breath. All they heard was the sound of the water. Then both were seized with a shivering fit. It seemed to them that they heard footsteps in the next room. Who's there? demanded the lad, recovering his breath with an effort. No one replied. Who is it? asked Ferruccio again, chilled with terror. But hardly had he pronounced these words when both uttered a shriek of terror. Two men sprang into the room. One of them grasped the boy and placed one hand over his mouth. The other clutched the old woman by the throat. The first said, Silence, unless you want to die. The second said, Be quiet, and raised aloft a knife. Both had dark cloths over their faces, with holes for the eyes. For a moment nothing was heard but the gasping breath of all four and the patter of the rain. The old woman rattled in her throat, and her eyes were starting from her head. The man who held the boy said in his ear, Where does your father keep his money? The lad replied faintly, between chattering teeth, Yonder in the cupboard. Come with me, said the man, and he dragged him into the closet room, holding him securely by the throat. There was a dark lantern standing on the floor. 
Where is the cupboard? he demanded. The gasping boy pointed it out. Then, in order to make sure of the boy, the man flung him on his knees in front of the cupboard, pressing his neck closely between his own legs, in such a way that he could throttle him if he shouted. Holding his knife in his teeth and his lantern in one hand, with the other he pulled from his pocket a pointed iron, drove it into the lock, fumbled about, broke it, threw the doors wide open, tumbled everything over in a perfect fury of haste, filled his pockets, shut the cupboard again, opened it again, made another search, then he seized the boy by the windpipe and pushed him to where the other man was still grasping the old woman, who was in a swoon, with her head thrown back and her mouth open. That one asked in a low voice, Did you find it? His companion replied, I found it, and he added, See to the door. The one that was holding the old woman ran to the door of the garden to see if there were any one there, and called in from the little room in a voice that resembled a hiss, Come! The one who stayed behind, and who was still holding Ferruccio fast, showed his knife to the boy and the old woman, who had opened her eyes again, and said, Not a sound, or I'll come back and cut your throat. And he glared at the two for a moment. At this juncture they heard a song sung by many voices far off on the highway. The robber turned his head hastily towards the door, and the violence of the movement caused the cloth to fall from his face. The old woman gave a shriek. Mozzoni! Accursed woman! roared the robber, and finding himself recognized. You shall die! He hurled himself, with his knife raised, against the old woman, and she fainted away. The assassin dealt the blow. But Ferruccio, with an exceedingly rapid movement and uttering a cry of desperation, had rushed to his grandmother and covered her body with his own. The assassin fled, stumbling against the table and overturning the light which was extinguished. The boy slipped slowly from above his grandmother, fell on his knees, and remained in that attitude, with his arms around her body and his head upon her breast. Several moments passed. It was very dark. The song of the peasants gradually died away. The old woman recovered her senses. Ferruccio, she cried with chattering teeth, in a voice that was barely intelligible. Grandmother, replied the lad. The old woman made an effort to speak, but terror had paralyzed her tongue. She remained silent for a while, quivering violently. At last she succeeded in asking, They are not here now? No. They did not kill me, murmured the old woman in a stifled voice. No, you are safe, said Ferruccio in a weak voice. You are safe, dear grandmother. They carried off the money but father had taken nearly all of it with him. 
his grandmother drew a deep breath. Grandmother, said Ferruccio, still kneeling and pressing her close to him. Dear grandmother, you love me, don't you? Oh, Ferruccio, my poor little son, she replied, placing her hands on his head. What a fright you must have had. Oh, Lord God of mercy, light the lamp. No, let us remain in the dark. I am still afraid. Grandmother, resumed the boy, I have always caused you grief. No, Ferruccio, you must not say such things. I shall never think of that again. I have forgotten everything. I love you so dearly. I have always caused you grief, pursued Ferruccio, with difficulty, and his voice shook. But I have always loved you. Do you forgive me? Forgive me, grandmother. Yes, my son. I forgive you with all my heart. Think, how could I help forgiving you? Rise from your knees, my child. I will never scold you again. You are so good, so good. Let us light the lamp. Let us take courage a little. Rise, Ferruccio. Thanks, grandmother, said the boy, and his voice was still weaker. Now, I am content. You will remember me, grandmother, will you not? You will always remember me, your Ferruccio? My Ferruccio! exclaimed his grandmother, amazed and alarmed, as she laid her hands on his shoulders and bent her head, as though to look him in the face. Remember me murmured the boy once more, in a voice that seemed like a breath. Give a kiss to my mother, to my father, to Luigina. Goodbye, grandmother. In the name of heaven, what is the matter with you? shrieked the old woman, feeling the boy's head anxiously as it lay upon her knees. And then, with all the power of voice of which her throat was capable, and in desperation, Ferruccio, 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 my child, my love, angels of paradise, come to my aid. But Ferruccio made no reply. The little hero, the savior of the mother of his mother, stabbed in the back by a blow from a knife, had given up his noble, daring soul to God. The Little Mason on His Sickbed Tuesday, 28th Poor Muratorino is seriously ill. The master told us to go and see him, and Grone, Dorosi, and I agreed to go together. Stadi would have come also, but the teacher had assigned us the description of the monument to Cavour. He told us that he must go and see the monument, 
in order that his description might be more exact. So, by way of experiment, we invited that puffed-up fellow, Nobis, who replied, no, and nothing more. Votini also excused himself, perhaps because he was afraid of soiling his clothes with plaster. We went there when we came out of school at four o'clock. It was raining in torrents. On the street, Garone halted and said, with his mouth full of bread, what shall I buy? And he rattled a couple of soldi in his pocket. We gave two soldi each and bought three big oranges. We went up to the garret. At the door, Dorosi took off his medal and put it in his pocket. I asked him why. I don't know, he answered, in order not to put on airs. It strikes me as more delicate to go in without my medal. We knocked. The father, that big man who looks like a giant, opened to us. His face was sad and drawn. Who are you? he asked. Garoni replied, We are Antonio's schoolmates and we have brought him some oranges. Ah, poor Tonino, exclaimed the mason, shaking his head. I fear that he will never eat your oranges, and he wiped his eyes with the back of his hand. He made us come in. We entered an attic room, where we saw the little mason asleep in a little iron bed, his mother hung dejectedly over the bed, with her face in her hands, and she hardly turned to look at us. On one side hung brushes, a trowel, and a plaster sieve. Over the feet of the sick boy was spread the mason's jacket, white with lime. The poor boy was thin and very, very white. His nose was pointed, and his breath was short. Oh, dear Tonino, my little comrade, you who were so kind and merry, how it pains me. What would I not give to see you make that hare's face once more? Poor little Mason. Garoni laid an orange on his pillow, close to his face. The odor waked him. He grasped it instantly, then let go of it and gazed intently at Garoni. It is I, said the latter. Garoni, do you know me? He smiled faintly, lifted his stubby hand with difficulty from the bed, and held it out to Garoni, who took it between his and laid it against his cheek, saying, Courage, courage, little mason. You are going to get well soon and come back to school, and the teacher will put you next to me. Will that please you? But the little mason made no reply. His mother burst into sobs. Oh, my poor Tonino, my poor Tonino. He is so brave and good, and God is going to take him from us. Silence! cried the mason. 
Silence for the love of God, or I shall lose my reason. Then he said to us, with anxiety, Go, go, boys. I thank you. Go. What could you do here? I thank you. Go home. The boy had closed his eyes again, and appeared to be dead. Do you need any assistance? asked Goroni. No, my good boy, thank you, the mason answered. And so saying, he pushed us out on the landing and shut the door. But we were not halfway down the stairs when we heard him calling, Goroni! Goroni! We all three mounted the stairs once more in haste. Goroni! shouted the mason with a changed countenance. He has called you by name. It is two days since he spoke. He has called you twice. He wants you. Come, quickly. Ah, holy God, if this is only a good sign. Farewell for the present, said Garoni to us. I shall remain. And he ran in with the father. Dorosi's eyes were full of tears. Are you crying for the little mason, I said? He has spoken. He will recover. I believe it, replied Dorosi, but I was not thinking of him. I was thinking how good Goroni is and what a beautiful soul he has. Count Cavour Wednesday, 29th You are to write a description of the monument to Count Cavour. You can do it. But who was Count Cavour? You cannot understand a present. For the present, this is all you know. He was for many years the Prime Minister of Piedmont. It was he who sent the Piedmontese army to the Crimea to raise once more, with the victory of Sernaya, our military glory, which had fallen with the defeat at Novara. It was he who made one hundred and fifty thousand Frenchmen descend from the Alps to chase the Austrians from Lombardy. It was he who governed Italy in the most solemn period of our revolution, who gave during those years the most potent impulse to the holy enterprise of the unification of our country. He, with his brilliant mind, with his invincible perseverance, with his more than human industry. Many generals have passed terrible hours on the field of battle, but he passed more terrible ones in his cabinet when his enormous work might suffer destruction at any moment, like a fragile edifice at the tremor of an earthquake. Hours, nights of struggle, and anguish did he pass, sufficient to make him issue from it with reason deranged and death in his heart. And it was this gigantic and stormy work which shortened his life by twenty years. Nevertheless, devoured by the fever which was to cast him into his grave, he yet contented desperately with a malady in order to accomplish something for his country. 
It is strange, he said sadly on his deathbed. I no longer know how to read. I cannot read. While they were bleeding him and the fever was increasing, he was thinking of his country, and he said imperiously, Cure me. My mind is clouding over. I have need of all my faculties to manage important affairs. During his last moments, when the whole city was in a tumult, and the king stood at his bedside, he said anxiously, I have many things to say to you, sire, many things to show you, but I am ill, I cannot, I cannot, and he was in despair. His feverish thoughts hovered ever round the state, round the new Italian provinces, which had been united with us, round the many things which still remained to be done. While the delirium seized him, Educate the children, he exclaimed, between his gasp for breath. Educate the children, and the young people govern with liberty. His delirium increased. Death hovered over him. And with burning words, he invoked General Garibaldi, with whom he had had disagreements, and Venice and Rome, which were not yet free. He had vast visions of the future of Italy and of Europe. He dreamed of a foreign invasion. He inquired where the corps of the army were, and the generals. He still trembled for us, for his people. His great sorrow was not, you understand, that he felt that his life was going, but to see himself fleeing his country, which still had need of him, and for which he had, in a few years, worn out the measureless forces of his wonderful constitution. He died with a battle cry in his throat, and his death was as great as his life. Now reflect a little, Enrico. What sort of thing is our labor, which nevertheless so weighs us down? What are our griefs, our death itself, in the face of the toils and the terrible anxieties, the tremendous agonies of these men, upon whose hearts rest a world? Think of this, my son when you pass before that marble image, and say, Glory, in your heart, your Father. End of section 14